Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. We are thinking through God's Word together, especially today. We are focused on Hebrews, as we have been for some weeks now. Glad to have you with us on this beautiful day. It is a good day. In fact, it is a great day. You know who made this day, right? You know who is reigning over heaven and earth? Who has the whole world in his hands? Who is actively crushing his enemies, building his kingdom, building his church, edifying the saints, providing blessing upon blessing upon blessing on his people. You know who who that is, right? That's the Lord Jesus. If you are a Christian, he is your husband, provider, protector, It's a good day. How can it not be a good day? He's given us eternal life, forgiveness of sins, and even simple things like a cup of coffee. Ah, just so delicious. So how can we not rejoice and be glad in this day the Lord has made? Glad you're here with us. Hey, Keith and Alan and Lewis and Caitlin, Ron, it's a good day. So we're uh, in Hebrews 13. And we are looking at some of the instructions that the writer is giving as he begins to wrap up uh, this letter. And today we talk about two issues that are continual temptations for Christians in every age. Now, we will look at it in its context here in Hebrews, but it is certainly true that everywhere, all the time, for believers— There are temptations to sexual sin, and I would say not just sin in terms of um, doing what you shouldn't do, but also just in how we view marriage and sexuality. And then money is always a temptation. I've done uh, for 26 years now or so, I've been involved in in marriage counseling, premarital counseling. And I will tell you, uh, these two issues continue to be near the top of the temptations. They're not the cause. In fact, if you read my book, God's Design for Marriage, you will learn there is only one marriage problem. It's not sex. It's not money. It's not even communication. Have you any, any of you read my book? Or do you know? Have you heard me teach on this too? Who can tell me what the one marriage problem is? Is there's only one? Anybody? Let me see if anybody has it while I continue on. So, uh, money and sex are not the marriage problem, but they are provocations, they are temptations. Yeah, Lewis says self, exactly. I usually say that it's sin, and so the only marriage problem is sin, and the one sin that causes all of our, all of our problems is selfishness. We aren't getting what we want, so we fight. Doesn't mean there aren't conflicts to work through. But if you are selfless, if both parties in a marriage are selfless, even if one of them is acting selflessly, it doesn't become a massive problem because the one who is acting selflessly will be gracious and work toward a resolution. Problem is, when both of you are acting selfishly, that's when it turns into a problem. So there's your uh, marriage counsel for the day. But what is it that tempts us to selfishness? Well, two of the biggest things 
in marriage are, are sex and marriage, uh, sex and money. So here's the, uh, the instruction given in, uh, Hebrews 13, four marriage. Oh, there we go. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. So let's take that one first. The first thing he says is marriage is to be held in honor among all. It is uh, literally, there's no verb in the Greek. And that's why you have the italics there. Uh, marriage is honorable among all. But the context and the, uh, the other verbs would indicate this is, you know, a command, certainly instruction here. So my first question to us is, what's our view of marriage? Do we honor it? Even if you're not married, do you honor marriage? Do you consider it precious and valuable? Maybe you have been through a hard marriage. Maybe you are in a hard marriage. Maybe you have been divorced. None of those things should take away the honor and esteem that we should rightly give to marriage. Now, can, can marriage be taken too far? Can, it, can we make almost an idol out of it? Of course we can. But let's not fall off the other side of the horse. God made marriage. He started in the garden. The very first man and the very first woman were married to one another. And marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. It is to be honored. We love, live among a people that have a very low view of marriage. And it shows, doesn't it? In, in every way, our culture is trying to devalue marriage. Things like um, no-fault divorce. That's simply an attack on marriage. You can get out of it whenever you want to. That reduces its value. The fact that women are encouraged to have sex with men who they're not married to, uh, that devalues marriage because uh, someone has put it very crassly, <laughs> why would you buy the milk or buy the cow if you can get the milk for free, right? If you're part of the pursuit of marriage is the desire for sex, well, if women will give it away without the commitment of marriage, then there's no point in getting married. That's a devaluation of it. Pornography, all the, all the sexual sin. The, the idea that uh, divorce is easy. Did you know that 80% of divorces are initiated by women? And they always receive, or almost always, receive the biggest benefit, whether it's kids, child support, you know, all this feminist nonsense, uh, where they're trying to say that women should be equal in the, in the uh, workplace and all that, and yet women are the ones that get the huge portion of the child support, alimony, all those things. It's all designed to devalue marriage. And that's, that's the culture we live in. And then we have our own just struggles. People have had hard times. It doesn't change the fact that God has honored marriage. And we need to have the appropriate esteem and give the appropriate value to marriage as given by God. So ask yourself, even removing your own marriage, if you're married, from the, from the discussion for a moment, in general, do you look at marriage as something that is to be guarded and protected and highly valued because God says so? 
And it's probably worth our time to seek the Lord and ask him to expose where we may dishonor marriage in our thinking and where we need to separate our experiences from what God says about marriage. That's what he says. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let me read that again. The marriage bed is to be undefiled. You know what it means to be undefiled? It means keep it pure, keep it clean, keep it unstained, unblemished. Well, how do you blemish, stain the marriage bed? You have sex in it with someone who you're not married to. And the stakes are high. He says, God will judge fornicators and adulterers. Sex outside of marriage, sex with anyone you're not married to, stains the marriage bed and God will judge those people. As Christians, we must exalt uh, maybe that's too strong a word. We must hold sexuality in its proper place. It is wonderful. It's a gift of God for husbands and wives. So don't, it, it, sex is not bad. Sin is bad. If you have kids, I highly encourage you to teach your kids that. Sex is not bad. Sin is bad. Sex inside of marriage honors the marriage. Sex outside of marriage in any form defiles it and God will judge people. It's not a... It's not a, uh, a small sin. You realize that in the lists in the New Testament, like in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians and other places, the list of sins that prove that a person are not Christians, they're not in the kingdom, in every case on the list is sexual sin, fornication, sexual immorality, adultery. If you practice those things, it doesn't matter what comes out of your mouth, what you say about Jesus, how much you love Jesus, if you practice sexual sin, you're not a believer. God will judge sexual, sexually immoral. Keep the marriage bed pure. So my question in the context of Hebrews is, what is it about their setting that causes the writer to stress this? Remember, these are... Former Jews who become Christians, they've suffered persecution for their faith by the Jews, and now they are tempted to go back to the old covenant structures and priesthood and so on. And he's encouraged them, take care of prisoners, fellow believers who are in, in jail for the faith, uh, love the brothers, be good to them, those kind of things. What is it about Jewish persecution and the first century that brings a temptation to dishonor marriage and to be involved in sexual sin. And I, I honestly don't know. I'm thinking through this. Maybe you know. I'm trying to think of, do we have examples? Do we know of examples where Jews were sexually immoral in the first century? They certainly were back in the days of the prophets. Uh, Isaiah, other prophets, uh, they speak strongly against the, the great wickedness, sexual wickedness of the Jews of those days. 
But do we see examples of that in the first century in the Gospels, for instance? Uh, and somebody, somebody, if you if you have a a thought, I'd love to see it because um, I'm trying to figure out what is it about uh, that that culture and that setting that provokes the author here to address this, uh, or what is it about persecution that causes a temptation to dishonor marriage and to commit sexual sin? I wonder. Uh, if you're not married in the midst of persecution, you may not want to get married because that just introduces more difficulty when things are hard. Uh, Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians. He says, because of the present distress, I encourage you to stay single. Now, he doesn't mean all everywhere, all the time, stay single. Other places, he strongly encourages marriage. But in the midst of whatever distress, and there's different uh, explanations, different possibilities, famine, uh, persecution by the Romans, whatever. In light of that present distress, he says, I encourage you to stay like I am and be single. But if the temptation is too strong, it's better to get married than to burn. Right. So if you're in the midst of persecution... You still have sexual desire, but you're not. If you're not married, you don't have an outlet for that. So, is that what's going on here? Um, Peter says a big issue was divorce. That's true. Yeah, they treated marriage very lightly. So maybe that's the uh, that could be part of it. Uh, marriage is to be held in honor among all. So don't divorce. Yeah, that's a good point. Really good point. And then, of course, if you divorce for uh, unrighteous reasons and then remarry, you're committing adultery, Jesus said. So yeah, that's good. Uh, Ron says, perhaps influx of other cultural values, maybe. Maybe being influenced by uh, the, the pagans around them, that kind of thing. Um, I don't know. It's very interesting. Uh, very interesting to to think that through and try to decide what specific about that uh, setting caused the writer here to say, Honor marriage, don't let it become devalued, and just remember, God will judge sexually immoral. And we in the 21st century, even though we're not under persecution here in the West, we have got to take this verse seriously. Hold marriage in high esteem. Encourage young men and women to get married. Don't, don't join the chorus of voices in our nations that are devaluing marriage. Hold it up, encourage young men and women to get married, and we need to warn them. God will judge sexual immorality. We make such a big deal right now in the church with the trans stuff and even homosexuality because that's the thing that's on the, uh, on the front burner. We must not allow fornication and adultery to slip in the background as though, yeah, they're not good, but they're not that bad. But trans stuff and homosexuality, that's really bad. No, no, no. Any sexual expression that's not with your spouse is offensive to God, and he will judge, says the author. And then the second thing, and this one is a little easier in this context, is make sure that your character is free of the love of money. Literally, it's don't covet. Don't want someone else's money. Be content with what you have. Why? For he himself said, I will never desert you, nor I will, nor ever forsake you. 
So we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Here he's quoting uh, from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy 31, and then here it's Psalm 118, and he's applying it, uh, he's reminding them, this is who God is, this is what he has said. God says, I will not desert you, I will not forsake you. That was when Moses, at the end of his life, was saying, look, y'all are about to enter the promised land, you Israelites, you're about to enter the promised land, God's going to go with you, I won't go with you, because I sinned, and (laughs) my punishment is, I don't get to enter. But Joshua is going to lead you in, and God has said, I will not leave you nor forsake you. You're going in there, and you're going to have to fight. There will be suffering. You're going to be engaged in battle. Well, these first century Christians are engaged in battle. They're being persecuted. It's costing them significantly to remain faithful to Jesus. Day in and day out, they're on threat of danger and violence just as the Israelites were as they entered the promised land. And God told them in Moses' day, I will not abandon you. I'm with you in the fight. I will not forsake you. That would have been great encouragement to this first century church to remind them, yeah, you're in battle. Yes, you're suffering. Yes, there's opposition. But God is with his people. He will not abandon you. Stay the course. And then Psalm 118, this verse, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? At the end of the day, what can man do to you? He can kill you. Now that's not pleasant. (laughs) Nobody wants to walk into death. Nobody wants to be beaten to death. Nobody wants to be shot. Right? Nobody wants their houses burned down. Of course, that the threat is real of those things if you're in a situation of persecution. So I don't say this easily and lightly, but Jesus said it. Don't fear the one who can kill the body, but then can do nothing to your soul. Fear the one who can kill both your body and soul. Right? As painful as suffering is, It will come to an end in death. And then after that is eternal life. So what can man do to you? If God has promised you with eternal life, if he's promised to be with you and not forsake you, stay the course. Trust him. And in particular, the context here is money. Again, especially in days of, of opposition and affliction and persecution, you're losing money, you're losing homes, you're losing your livelihood. Stay the course. Trust the Lord. Yeah, Lewis says this is another affirmation to hold fast. Stay the course and trust the Lord that he will not abandon you. Your lifestyle may not remain as high as it has been, but he will take care of his people. And these folks should have known that because they had the Old Testament. And the author is reminding them of that. For us here in the West, and there are exceptions to this all over the world, but here in the West, we are not under threat of persecution like they were. Some think it's coming. It might be. But we're not there right now. And what we have to be careful of is that we are not covetous. 
that we don't love money. We have lots of it. And we always have to guard against loving it. Paul says the love of money is the root of all evil. How much wickedness is a result of a, a love, a, 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 an affection for money, more, 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 more greed and that kind of thing. We have to guard ourselves against that, be content. Doesn't mean we don't pursue more. Wealth is good. Pursue wealth, but use it for godliness, not simply to have more of it. And we always have to guard against that. All right, looks like there's a couple of comments here. Grady says, many of the references about adultery and sexual sin in the prophets is referencing idol worship and unfaithfulness to God. Maybe that has something to do with it. Uh, that's certainly true uh, in the Old Testament and the prophets. He compares idolatry and adultery and uses adultery to represent that. Absolutely. But there's also plenty of times where uh, the prophets say specifically uh, they were committing adultery, fornication, uh, remember uh, Eli's sons having the, the women right there at the temple gates, uh, that kind of thing. Um, so it, it could be here that in Hebrews, he's kind of bringing those two, the spiritual idolatry and adultery together. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Uh, however, the fact that he gives the warning of fornication and adultery, God will judge. I think he's probably talking about sexuality in and of itself. So it's worth asking yourself today in the 21st century, we're not in that context. We're not suffering the way they were. What is your view of sex and money? Do you have the appropriate view? They are to be honored in one sense. Well, yeah, maybe don't honor money, but they're good things. Both of them are good, but they can be strong temptations to sin. So it's worth evaluating, asking yourself before the Lord, where am I at in these things? Do I honor marriage? Do I keep sex pure? Am I avoiding covetousness? And am I trusting the Lord to provide what I need? That's where we need to be, even in our day. All right, we're going to call it a day there. Have a great one, and Lord willing, we'll come back tomorrow and carry on. God bless.